0: In our study of goodness and graciousness, we come to a message this morning that is sure to be a little bit inconvenient. You see, every one of us thinks that we know the truth. A few of us understand the complexity of this term that we call truth, and I want to dissect that for a little bit. If you were to look into a dictionary, the word truth you would get from a philosophical perspective this definition. Truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what matches its object. And truth is simply telling it like it is. Um, That's fine for a dictionary definition, but the dynamics of truth are quite different. When we walk through this world, it gets a little bit more complicated than that. So today, we want to talk a little bit about nurturing truth, and the way we're going to do it is the first thing we acknowledge is that the subject is a little bit more inconvenient than we want it to be, because when we think about nurturing truth, and even if we take the uh, definition from the dictionary that it corresponds to reality, it matches its object, it is telling it like it is. Yet at times that's inconvenient because it puts us on the wrong side of things. And so what we find, we as human beings often like to shade the truth, we often like to deny the truth, or sometimes we try to hide the truth. And when that happens, many times we wonder what the real truth is. Have you ever wondered that when you watch a newsreel, when you read something online? Is this true, is this false, or is it something in between? And so we go back to the question that was asked of Jesus by a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. He was in the Apostles' Creed, right? And he's the one that ultimately uh, puts Christ on the cross. But prior to that moment of condemnation, in John chapter 18, we're told about this conversation that Jesus is having with uh, Pilate. And what's interesting is Jesus makes a statement in John 18.37. He says, I came into the world to testify to the truth. And then Pilate speaks up. And you remember the line. He says, what is truth? What is truth? Now, what is he doing there? Is he being cynical? Is he being skeptical or is he being realistic? That is, it's hard to decide where truth comes from. And when we think we have our hand on the truth, isn't it funny that a little bit later down the line that what we think we have our hand on is not firm, it's almost like gripping jello and kind of eases through our fingers? Yet the Bible calls us to know the truth, to tell the truth, and to live by the truth. And we made a profession of faith that is built on certain things that we believe to be true. Jesus makes a claim in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Later, Paul will say this in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. And then he says in the same book in chapter 3, verse 15, 1 Timothy, he adds this, the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so, truth is hard to get our arms around, and yet at the same time we are called upon by God to embrace the truth, to encourage others to embrace the truth, to pass the truth along. So, if God is the truth and our faith is the truth, then what is so inconvenient about that? Well, here's the problem. And the problem is how we use truth, and I put that in quotation. Sometimes when people think that they have a handle on the truth in an absolute sense, they can often take that truth and turn it into a weapon. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes people will take what they think is absolute truth, they become belligerent and arrogant, And they will hit people over the head with that. And I will back up and I will say this. Wait a minute. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. And I'm going to illustrate that for you in just a moment. So none of us, I think, in the pursuit of being gracious and good, understands that using the Bible as a weapon First of all, misunderstands how the Bible came together in the first place. The Bible's written over a long period of time, a long period of time, in diverse cultures with different authors and different genres. Even the authors themselves are quite diverse. You have some Jewish authors, you have men authors, you have some women, you have those that are uh, Gentile in nature as well. In fact, there's some books of the Bible we don't even know who the author is, to tell you the truth. So, when we talk about some disagreements about what is truth, well, that goes back a long ways. Uh, The 66 books that we have in our Bible, do you realize even that was disputed? And in Catholic uh, Bibles, there's an extra set of books called the Apocrypha that they felt should be included in the Bible. Well, there is this understanding of truth that needs to be built upon this first observation. And that is, we understand that the Bible is not a single book. It is a library of different thoughts, of different cultures, of different customs, and different communities as well. And yet, we are called upon to know this as the opportunity for us to embrace truth. So we've been talking about this Circle of Tov, a Hebrew word that means goodness. And we've been talking about nurturing empathy, nurturing grace, putting people first, and nurturing truth. And when we talk about nurturing truth, we need to keep these other things in mind. If we use truth as a weapon that takes away empathy and grace and prioritizing other people, well, maybe we've missed something along the way. And so, in knowing the truth, what we understand is it's given to us in bits and pieces it comes over a long period of time it comes through various authors and various cultures and various communities but when we get to the new testament what we are called to do in knowing the truth is this we are called upon to look at jesus so in john chapter 1 verse 14 John says this, we have seen the glory of the one and only the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John 1:14. In other words, truth is not just a set of ideas, truth is not just a philosophy, truth comes to us in the form of a person. And that's called the incarnation. God becomes man. And so What is God like? That was the book that was read in the kids' ministry last Sunday morning. And what we need to understand is God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. There never was a time that God was not like Jesus. We have not always known that, but we do now. He has revealed himself in the incarnation. So in knowing the truth, what we find is it's embodied in the person of Jesus but we need some help along the way. And what we find in the Bible, if you read the Gospel of John, you'll find that when you come to chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a promise that when he's going away, that he's not going to leave us as orphans, but he's going to give to us, listen, the spirit of truth. Now that's another name for the Holy Spirit. So in John chapter 15, verse 26, and in John chapter 16, verse 13, in both situations, Jesus is saying the spirit of truth will testify about me. It keeps pointing back to me. And then in John 16, 13, it says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, there is this um, dynamic that takes place in the pursuit of truth. And that is, we need to see it pictured. And so God becomes a man in the person of Christ, and we also need some assistance. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in the pursuit of truth. And in many ways, growing in truth is a process, and it's a, uh, it's a maturing that takes place. So I want you to notice up here, I have up on my table here... Uh, what is called a nesting doll. Now, this nesting doll comes out of our China cabinet, and Esty had this nesting doll given to her, and I don't remember by who now, but uh, anyways, a nesting doll is a doll that continues to go smaller and it keeps sitting inside the larger one. I'm going to illustrate this for you in just a moment. So What we're going to talk about is each element of this nesting doll represents kind of the journey that we all are on in understanding truth. The first thing I want us to notice is the smallest kernel here, the smallest nesting doll, we might say, is we're all made in the image of God. We all have the capacity to learn truth, and to grow in truth. And if that is kind of the kernel, if that's the smallest element of what we understand, then we treat each other accordingly, right? You're made in the image of God, I'm made in the image of God, I respect that, you have dignity, I have dignity. Now, when we first understand that, and then we begin to say, I want to learn what truth is, I'm looking to Jesus, I'm depending on the Holy Spirit, but how is it that I can continue to grow in truth? Well, you we need to understand that truth has several levels to it. We might say this is also some stages of faith that we go through as well. And so, the first stage of faith, or the first level of truth, I want to call simplicity. Okay? Simplicity. So, we take this kernel. Of truth that we're all made in the image of God, that we all have uh, the right to respect and dignity, and we place it inside this first level of truth that I'm calling simplicity. Now, what is simplicity? Simplicity is the way that we see the world. In other words, when we're young, when we're kids, we see the world kind of in black and white, don't we? Everything is kind of concrete. Um, There's not many shades of gray. There's uh, not a lot of nuance. There is uh, not a lot of metaphors or figures of speech that little kids can understand. So when you talk to a a young child and you're talking to them, they're going to understand things kind of in black and white. They just don't know idioms and figures of speech that represent something else. Now, when we first come to faith, and when we first pursue truth, our understanding is simplistic. Uh, That's the way we see the world. Somehow we think that the world, now that I've become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, everything is black and white. Now, often this attitude produces a lot of conflict with other people, because there are people that want to kind of stay at this stage of faith or stay at this level of truth, this simplistic approach where everything is black or white. There's no shades of gray. And usually an attitude that goes along with this is, hey, you're either for us or against us, right? And if you don't agree with me, well, then you're wrong. If you don't agree with me or you're teaching something else, you're a false teacher. Or worse yet, if you're uh, somehow uh, denying a key aspect of faith that I believe to be essential, you are possibly a heretic. And those words are thrown around a lot within Christianity. And some Christians judge other Christians because their focus is only on what is right or wrong, good or bad. They have no other options at all. And the motive, it seems to me, is they choose a particular authority figure. And the authority figure is either a Bible teacher or a pastor or a professor. And they elevate that person, and everything that person says is right. And so they hear another pastor or another professor or another teacher, and they go, Well, he doesn't agree with him, and he's my guru. Uh, they must be wrong, rather than understanding there's a variety of voices that's helping us to understand how to know the truth. Now, usually what happens with this, and here's where a lot goes wrong in church. So when you elevate a certain individual and everything that they say is true, you want to remain on the good side of that person. So in many ways, you don't want to disagree with them. And to continue to be an insider with this group of people that all elevate this individual as a guru, well, then you better kind of fall in line and you fail to think for yourself. You fail to think for yourself. That is simplistic thinking. See, truth is quite complex. And what we find is that when we're young, we have this foolish notion That every part of the Bible fits together perfectly, hand in glove. It's only really later in your journey that you find that some pieces don't fit, that there's even disagreement in the scriptures from one author to another. But people who think simplistically think that it all has to fit together. So, what system of Belief? Am I going to choose uh, that I think in my mind all the pieces fit together? Well, some people choose Catholicism, some people choose Lutheranism, some people choose Presbyterianism, some people choose Methodism. You know, the, the list goes on and on. They're right. Their system is completely right. Now, can I, can I lend you a little insight here? None of them are completely right. There is no system that is completely right because systems are built by human beings and human beings are limited. Human beings think that they understand something, but it's only when they come to the next level of pursuing truth or level of faith that they begin to see it's much more complex than that. And so the next level is complexity. And we might say that the kernel of truth, us being made in the image of God, that sits inside some simplistic thinking, and that's okay. That's a great way to get started. But eventually you're going to understand that it sits inside complexity. Okay? Complexity is the understanding that there's more than one way to see something. Okay? There's more than one way to see something. And the focus changes a little bit there from elevating a particular pastor, professor, teacher, guru, or whatever it may be, to understand there's a multitude of voices out there, and they can all be beneficial to a certain extent to my growth and to my walk of faith. And when I begin to understand that God has put a variety of different kinds of people on this earth that I can learn from, and they might be people that are Christians. It might be people that are non-Christians. It might be people that believe in a different world religion. Uh, so um, in the kids' video, uh, Jenny quoted Gandhi, right? Well, Gandhi's not a Christian, but I'm going to tell you something. Gandhi, in many ways, is more Christ-like than even some Christians because of the way he honors those, the image of God in everyone you follow me, what I'm saying? So, complexity is the understanding that there's more than one way to see something. Boy, it, it would be great if that's all there was. There's another level. We move from complexity to perplexity. Okay? Perplexity is this. There are just some mysteries that we cannot solve there are some things that we cannot understand. Now, we might get information later on, right, that will help open the door to our understanding. But think about 200 years ago. Think about before the Wright brothers. Think about before inventors that were able to send rockets to the moon or to circle the earth. If you were to tell somebody 300, 400, 500 years ago that someday we're going to sit in a tin can and we're going to fly from here halfway around the world to someplace else. So the Olympics are finishing tonight. Each athlete from different countries got on that tin can and they're going to fly tonight or tomorrow, sometime this week, from Tokyo back to their home country. That's perplexity. At one point in time, we don't understand, how are the birds staying up there in the air? Esty and I were watching some birds the other day, and they were just moving with the current. Just so graceful, right? How is that even possible? How do they do that? They're not even flapping their wings, and they're somehow moving. And we might come into an understanding at some point, but we might not. Because there are some mysteries in this world that we might never, ever fully understand. And so, complexity has to sometimes sit within perplexity. There are sometimes things that we will never fully understand in our lifetime. Maybe our great grandkids or great, 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 great grandkids might, because Further new discoveries come along. But at this point in time, I have to say, this is something that I don't fully understand. We don't fully understand. And I think we're at that point in certain things like global warming. We're just at the beginning stage of understanding the Earth's temperature is changing. What is causing that to happen? We know in part what's happening, but there's probably a lot more to get to the heart of how to even turn that around so that our great-great-great-great-grandkids even have an earth to live on. You see what I'm saying? There's perplexity there. Now, the last stage is humility. When I have simplicity and I have complexity and then I have perplexity, well, then I have to come to a point in my life where I have humility humility. Humility is the realization that there are some things that are simple, that there are some things that are complex, there are some things that are beyond my understanding. And so in humility, I have to make this statement. And the statement is this, everyone on earth has imperfect knowledge. Everybody on earth has imperfect knowledge. Now, there are some geniuses that I mean, their intellect is 12 times mine, right? But even that individual has imperfect knowledge. And it is to believe that even though our knowledge is imperfect, even our understanding of truth is imperfect, it doesn't prevent me from being an individual that can be a beneficial presence In this world, we all share the same resources, we all share the same planet, we all share some of the same core values, people that we love, families that we cherish, and so forth. And so what we find is that as we understand in humility that we share some things in common, we share being made in the image of God, We share some simplistic things, we share some complex things, we share some perplexing things, but in humility we honor each other and understand that we speak the truth in love. You know, the Bible tells us that we are to speak the truth, however, it doesn't stop there. The period doesn't stop in speaking the truth. It's speaking the truth in love, and humility understands that if I don't speak in love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just a clanging gong. That's all I am. I'm just a clanging cymbal. And so 1 Corinthians 13.6 tells us that we are to rejoice in the truth. Ephesians, the passage I read earlier, tells us that we need to speak the truth. But we are to do it in love. We're to make sure that we honor other people in the way we share things that we believe to be the truth. Well, that is prefaced by us surrendering to the truth ourselves. Truth telling is not always easy. Truth telling uh, calls us first to surrender to the truth ourselves, about ourselves, about other people. And when we are humble, we are also vulnerable because what we understand is that none of us have a complete grasp on reality. Doesn't mean that we have no grip on reality, but it means that I could be wrong. And when we share something with other people, we need to be able to say, but I could be wrong, but I could be wrong. And one of the things that I have tried to do over the course of my ministry is tell people, honestly, I guess this is where I'm at right now in my journey, but there's maybe two or three or four other ways of looking at this topic, and I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So, Jesus makes a promise uh, in John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Well, yeah, the truth will set us free, but. Sometimes the truth will make us miserable first because it's only in humility that we begin to embrace I could be wrong. Now, when we refuse in humility to say I could be wrong, when I choose to hide in the shadows, when I'm afraid of being found out that I'm actually pretty ignorant on something, then I will try to defend myself by covering up things that I know deep down inside might not be true, but I can't let anybody else think that I don't know what I'm talking about. So what motivates us hiding in the shadows is often this zealous ambition that we have to protect our brand, to defend our reputation, maybe to preserve the glory of some self-conceited understanding of what I think success looks like. And when I do that, boy, I'm not really embracing the full complexity of what truth is as I pursue it. You know, we often live with a false self, don't we? And the Bible never ever pretends that somebody's perfect. When you read the Bible from front to back, one of the things that it is is honest. You know, although human history begins in hiding, it begins with an attempted cover-up in the garden. The Bible is not complicit in looking at that, uh, people that way. Think about this for a moment. We were just in the book of Genesis a month or so back, and some of the characters that we ran into in the book of Genesis, Abraham lied about his wife twice. Jacob deceived his father to steal his brother's birthright, Joseph His brothers sold him into slavery and then faked his death. And if we were to keep going in the Old Testament, Moses kills an Egyptian, flees to the desert, lives in exile for 40 years. David was an adulterer at best, a rapist at worst, and then arranged a murder of Bathsheba's husband. Then there's Solomon with 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's all in the Old Testament. And they're the good guys. You can look at a lot of other characters and you can go real deep. Then you get in the New Testament. You have the apostles James and John, that jockey for power and position among the disciples. They want to call down lightning from heaven to destroy a village that shunned Jesus. Peter at one point denies that he knows Jesus. And Paul is on the sideline early in his life giving hearty approval for the stoning of Stephen to death. And these are the people that we call saints. Isn't that amazing? So here, when we read the Bible, we're not reading fairy tales that have happy endings. We're getting a real look at real people who have gone through that same journey. They're made in the image of God. At some point, they had simplistic thinking. They ran into complex thinking. They ran into perplexity. But in humility, they come to a place where they feel that they give themselves over to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it's time, I think, for the church to come clean about how we got off track along the line. There has been a lot of abuses that have occurred through the history of the church. There have been power grabs. There's been cover-ups. There's been false narratives. There's been blatant public lies that have been told to people. And Maybe, just maybe, We all need to have a come-to-Jesus moment, not just as individuals, but as the church collectively around the world. Maybe we should have a Yom Kippur moment like the Jews have, where every year they confess that they have fallen short. Maybe, like our Jewish brothers and sisters, we need to have this annual day of confession and repentance and cleansing because maybe our church and maybe all the churches around the world have more of a love for power and prestige and profit than anything else. Maybe we need to confess our lack of care for the least of these. Maybe we need to acknowledge that we don't want to be inconvenienced about caring for other people. Maybe we need to be straight up about the way we are ruining our planet for the sake of the economy. Maybe we need to profess that we, for centuries, have often found scapegoats that we can blame our problems on. Maybe we must admit that we love violence and we actually want to live by the sword rather than the spirit. Maybe we need to repent of sending our young men and women into war based on false narratives or maybe even lies and they lose their life. Maybe we need to understand that these people who make the ultimate sacrifice come home and they are abandoned by the military, that they're not given good medical care, good mental care, or even the things that they need. Maybe we just need to refuse to use and abuse women and young children for cheap clothing. Maybe we need to ask God's forgiveness that we hate immigrants and members of the LGBTQ community. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need our Yom Kippur moment, don't we? Maybe what we need to understand is telling the truth is at the heart of the circle of Tove. Telling the truth is not instinctive in a toxic culture, but there is a promise, and the promise is this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So. What I want to do as we close this morning is I would like for us to stand. I just messed up the thing here. I would like for us to, this is a confession that we all need to make at times. And it's not specific, but it is a good place to start. And so would you say this confession with me, please, in unison? Well, stay standing as I close. Um, Here's just a closing thought uh, that I want to leave you with. We best imprint ourselves on others' lives, not when we are lord of our domain or captain of our ship or victors on the battlefield, but on those days when we speak truthfully, when we apologize humbly, when we cry genuinely, in those moments when we let go, when we fail, when we are defeated, we still seek the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, for our candles shine brightest on the darkest of nights, and we will be remembered not for the days that we ruled, but for the days that we have loved well. So may you know, and may I know, in the simplest of terms, that life is a gift, and love is the point. And each day we make a choice to live well, to love well, and to be a beneficial presence in our world. Amen. Thank you for coming out today, and may God bless you. We'll see you next time.